I want to welcome you to another beautiful day, and today is a special day, as we've studied and learned in the seminar. Today is the day that God commemorated to remind us of His creative power, amen? So I want to wish you a happy Sabbath. That may not be something that you're familiar with, but among people that keep the seventh-day Sabbath as a holy day, they will traditionally greet one another with the expression, happy Sabbath. So I want to welcome you and wish you a happy Sabbath today. Um, I also want to let you know that immediately following this presentation, there is a fellowship luncheon downstairs, and it's an opportunity for you as our guests to ask questions that you may have had about topics we've covered in the seminar, and uh, I just want to let you know that we are offering that after this program. Today, before we launch into this subject, uh, I want to invite you to just, it's always been our custom in the seminar before we begin to always open our topic with a word of prayer. So I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we open the Bible today, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be here. Guide our understanding of truth as we look at this subject today, the testimony of Jesus. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This last week, we covered a topic called the return of the woman. And when we covered that topic, we learned that God's last day people are described with two distinct characteristics. I want you to notice that with me on the screen here in Revelation 12, verse 17. The Bible says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Notice what they do, which keep the what, everybody? They keep the commandments of God, and they have, what else? The testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just remind you that we learned that God's last day people, his last day church, not only will they be keeping all of the commandments, but they will have a special manifestation of the of the spiritual gift called the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, what is this testimony of Jesus Christ? When we go over to Revelation 19, verse 10, which was our scripture reading, which was read so nicely for us by our young man there today, the Bible tells us <clears throat> that the testimony of Jesus is something very specific. Notice what it says in Revelation 19, 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that thou do it not. See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. Now, remember, this is an angel speaking to John. He says, I am your fellow servant and of your who? Your brethren. So notice the angel is speaking to John, and he says, I am of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Now, so this is what we know so far. God's last day church, they keep the commandments, and they have the, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, the angel comes to John. He says, John, don't worship me. I'm of your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. And then he says, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the what? The spirit of prophecy. May I explain this briefly? In Scripture, the expression the spirit of prophecy is synonymous with the gift of prophecy. In other words, the angel is telling John, John, don't worship me. I'm a, I'm a created being just like you. I also, like you and your brethren, I have the testimony of Jesus or the gift of prophecy.
Who are the people that have this gift, the testimony of Jesus? Who are John's brethren that have this? Notice what Revelation 22 verse 9 says. Then he said to me, see that thou do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the who? So who are John's brethren that have the testimony of Jesus according to the Bible? They are who? Prophets. Now, I want to explain something. The gift of prophecy can only be held by a prophet. Does that make sense? In other words, if you have the gift of prophecy, that makes you a prophet. And so what the angel was in essence saying is, John, don't worship me. I'm just a created being like you. I am of your brethren, the prophets who have this gift of prophecy. Now, today, I want to let you know that the Bible describes the gift of prophecy amongst a larger group of gifts that Jesus gave to his people when he ascended. And this is evidenced in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 6 and 7. Notice what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, even as the testimony of Christ. Now, let's review. What is the testimony of Jesus or the testimony of Jesus Christ? What is it again? It's the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, which means the church at Corinth had this gift so that you come short in no gift waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the church at Corinth, they had the gift of prophecy, which means that they must have had the, they must have had a prophet. Does that make sense? Only the gift, the, only the, a prophet can have the gift of prophecy. Now, let me read to you what gifts Jesus gave to his church when he ascended. Here's what it says. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave what? So this is describing when Jesus ascended to heaven. And it says that when he ascended, he gave certain gifts. To his church, to men. Notice these gifts. And he gave, and he himself gave to some to be what? Apostles, and to some what? Prophets, and to some what? Evangelists, and to some what? Pastors, and to others? Teachers. Now, I want you to notice that these were the spiritual gifts that Jesus gave to his church when he ascended. But let's keep reading. What were these gifts for? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, I want to ask you a question. Were these gifts given just for selfish reasons? No. The Bible says that they were to help the church. In other words, why do you need a pastor? Why do you need teachers? Why do you need apostles? Why do you need prophets? Why do you need all these gifts? They help the church to grow and be ready for the coming of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so this is what Paul is describing in Ephesians chapter 4. But I, don't miss this. Among that list of spiritual gifts, one of the gifts mentioned is the gift of prophecy. I want to read you a different list. This one's in 1 Corinthians 12. And I want you to listen carefully because this list is a little different. But you're going to see that there are some things that are the same. To one is given the word of what? Wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of what? Healing by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles. Now remember, these are spiritual gifts, but did you notice that in this list it says to another what gift? Prophecy. 
So even though the, the list is a little different in 1 Corinthians 12, it still mentions the gift of prophecy. Let me finish it. To another, the discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually. Notice these last three words. As he what? Now, I want to ask you a question. Who's the one that decides which spiritual gift you receive? According to the Bible, who's the one that decides that? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that distributes these gifts. Now, I want to make a point here because it's clear in the Bible that God gives every person some spiritual gift. Every person has one. And did you notice that it says distributing to each one, which means everybody gets one, but who decides which gift you get? That's up to God. That's up to the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So this is how the Bible describes these gifts of the Spirit. Now, today, I want to talk with you about these, this, these spiritual gifts. And I'm going to just briefly talk about a few things because I know that some of you are familiar with one gift more than any other gift. Um, you know, if you go to some churches today, you can find the entire church speaking in tongues, okay? Now, I want to share something with you. When you look at the Bible's description of the gift of tongues, the Bible's description was that they could use this spiritual gift to preach the gospel in all the world in places where they never, ever had any Christians before. So the spiritual gifts were given to help the churches spread the gospel in all the world. Does that make sense? But today, what you see in churches is that they have what they call the gift of tongues, but nobody understands what they're saying, and the only person that's benefited, according to the current understanding, is the person who speaks in that tongue, even though many of them don't even know what they're saying. Now, is that what the Bible describes as the gift of tongues? Not at all. It's very different. And if you're interested in this, if you're watching this and you have questions, you can write to us in the comment section or you can reach out to me later. And I have a little booklet that explains exactly what the difference is between the modern gift of tongues and what the Bible is describing. But let me show you what God predicted would happen right before Jesus comes a second time. The Bible says it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, what would they do? The Bible says they shall what? Prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Now, if you read Joel 2 in its context, Joel is talking about right before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's talking about the second coming. Right before Jesus comes, the Bible predicts that there will be a resurgence or there will be a rekindling of the gift of prophecy. The problem is that today, there are people who claim to be prophets. Uh, I'm, I'm not going um, to try to hide that fact. There are many people today that claim to have the gift of prophecy. Some of you may know who Benny Hinn is. Anybody know who Benny Hinn is? I don't know if you know, but Benny Hinn claims to be a prophet. He has made predictions, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, what I want you to know is that the Bible predicts that before Jesus comes, 
there will be true prophets, but there will also be false prophets. Here's what it says in Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and what else? False prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to, to do what? To deceive. So there must be some way that you can tell the difference between a false and a true prophet. Does that make sense? And today I want to talk to you about how we can tell the difference. First of all, whenever there is a genuine prophet, you all, or, okay, let, let me rephrase this. Whenever someone claims to be a prophet, you always have to test what they are saying. Are you with me? So the Bible says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but then it says, do what? Test all things. So the Bible does give us some tests, and I want to share them with you. The first test is this. If someone claims to be a prophet, they have to be accurate 100% of the time. How many, how many percent? 100%, okay? And let me prove, you, prove this to you from the Bible. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come to pass, does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not what? So in other words, what they're saying is, see, a prophet is not someone who predicts the future only. That's what we think of when we think of a prophet. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. And so when a person claims that God told me to tell you this, and if they make a prediction and it doesn't happen, the Bible says that that person is not a true prophet. If that's clear, can you say amen? And I want to point something out here. By this test, Benny Hinn cannot be a true prophet. Now, let me explain why. So back in 2003, or it wasn't like 2002, he made a prediction that 3-3 of 03, so March 3rd of 2003, God was going to wake up the Christian world with this big thing. Guess what? Nothing happened on 3-3 of 03. Are you, are you with me? And remember, if a person claims that God gave them this message and God is telling you to do this, then if they make a prediction and it doesn't happen, that person is not what? Not a true prophet. That's what the Bible says. Now, I want to give you one story that's going to kind of be a little bit different. Okay, so there's someone in the Bible that went to this big city, very wicked, and they walked up and down in the city and they said, God is going to destroy this city in 40 days. And they did that every day. And at the end of 40 days, nothing happened. Who am I talking about? Jonah. Did Jonah make a prediction? <laughs> don't, don't think too hard. Did Jonah make a prediction? He did. Did the prediction come to pass? Yeah, okay. So this is the point. You're right. You're exactly right. Jonah made a prediction, and it didn't come to pass, but Jonah was still a true prophet. Why? Because the prediction had a conditional element. What does that mean? God wasn't just going to destroy the people. He told them he would destroy it if they didn't repent. And guess what? From the king down to the common person, they all repented. And so what? God did not destroy Nineveh. Does that make sense? So why am I saying this? Some prophecies that prophets give are conditional. Does that make sense? Some prophecies are conditional. So 
This is one, one test. And again, as I said, if a prophet makes an unconditional prophecy, they have to be accurate 100% of the time. Test number two, they must be in harmony with the Bible, and I'm going to be more specific, and with the Ten Commandments. If someone claims to be a prophet and they say, oh, you know what, the Bible was wrong, or, you know, you don't have to keep the commandments, right away you know they're not sent from God. Here's how we know that. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of what? Of that prophet. In other words, if a, look, a prophet's purpose always was to point people back to the obedience of God's law. That was their whole role. That's why in the Bible, when you look at the expression, the law and the prophets, they always were together. Why? God had his Ten Commandments. And the prophet's goal, the prophet's function was to point people back to obeying the Ten Commandments. Does that make sense? That was their job. So when a prophet claimed that they were sent from God, but they taught the people to go away from the law, you automatically knew this was not sent by God. Uh, Let me finish this. Dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, here's another test that I want to just point out, and this is in the same vein. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is how much? No light in them. The Bible is telling us that a true prophet will always be in harmony with the Word of God and always in harmony with the Ten Commandments. So, this is a principle that I think it's very important to understand. Let me just share with you something that is a a pattern in the Old Testament. God wanted His people to keep His law. When the people began to go away from the law, God would send messengers. They were called prophets. And the prophets would say, hey, you people are disobeying God. Get back to obedience. Repent. And, you know, the people would sometimes repent. But sometimes they would totally reject the prophet. They would kill the prophet. And then sometimes they would completely go away from God's commandments. And then you know what God did? He no longer sent prophets. He removed the gift of prophecy. And we see this in the life of Saul. Do you remember Saul, King Saul? Saul continued to grieve the Holy Spirit in his life. At some point, Saul completely rejected God by going to a spiritualist, a witch, and he went and consulted for the future. Well, the sad thing is that at this point in Saul's life, there was no more message from God. Samuel the prophet had died, and basically as a result, Saul was left to die by his own mistake, and he was left without any vision. So this is a principle that I want you to understand. If the people reject the commandments completely, God removes the gift of prophecy. Now, here's the third way that you know someone is a genuine prophet. Not only do they have to be accurate 100% of the time, not only will they be in harmony with God's law and 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 the Word of God, they will always receive their message from God through dreams and visions. Let me share this with you. Numbers 12, 6, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a what? In a vision, I speak to him in a what? In a dream. So how does God speak to prophets? 
he speaks to them through visions and dreams. And remember what the Bible said in the last days before Jesus comes. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see what? So this is how God communicates with his prophets. Here's another point. When prophets are receiving their visions or when they're having physical phenomenon in that they do not breathe. Let me show this to you from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, verse 17. The Bible says, as for me, no, this is when he was in vision. As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any what? Breath left in me. In other words, Daniel was described as his experience when he was receiving this vision. And as he does, he simply says that there was no breath left in me. So if someone claims to be a prophet and they claim that they're having a vision, one of the ways that you can test and see if they really are a prophet, so you can hold their nose and see, are they really breathing or not? So this is one of the, the tests. And then there's another test, and, they, and that is that a prophet in vision will have a divine strength or a supernatural strength. Let me give you an example of this one. Daniel 10, verse 18. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me, and he strengthened me. So Daniel, if you read the whole chapter, Daniel was like weak. And then the Bible says that this angel comes and he gives Daniel like a divine or supernatural strength. So here are the tests of a prophet. And today, I want to talk to you about someone in recent times that had this supernatural gift, the gift of prophecy. Her name was Ellen Harmon. Ellen Harmon was born in Maine. And she was a twin. She had a twin sister by the name of Elizabeth. Now, her life is pretty simple. Um, there's not much that history records. But when she was in third grade, she was coming home from school, and a classmate threw a rock. And just as she called out Ellen's name, Ellen turned, and the rock hit her on her nose. Well, because of the accident, Ellen was no longer able to finish schooling. So basically, she stopped after third grade. Years later, she married someone by the name of James White, and she became known as Ellen White. And one of her first visions was when she was 17 years old. She saw a pathway, and it was leading to heaven, and it was an, a, a kind of an illustration of what God's people were going through. But the first thing that I want to try to do is I want to go through these tests and see, did Ellen White meet the gifts of or I should say the tests of a genuine prophet. First of all, did she make predictions? Were they accurate? Well, in 1902, she said, San Francisco and Oakland are becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord will visit them in his wrath. If you read one of her visions, she says she saw the buildings shaken like reeds. Guess what? Four years later, the great San Francisco earthquake hit, it was one of the most deadly earthquakes in the United States. And uh, she was actually in Australia at the time when the news came. And when she heard the news, she wept over the loss, tremendous loss of life. She also said this in 1864, and I put the date on there because this is important. She said, tobacco is a what? Boy, now, some of you are sitting here saying, that's not a prediction. What you don't realize is that at this time in American medical history, tobacco was being given out by doctors as a cure for lung diseases. I'm serious. If you had tuberculosis, 
it would tell you to smoke a cigar. See, cigarette manufacturing didn't take off until later. At this time, tobacco was largely consumed either in pipes or in cigars. So if you went to the doctor and you had a cough, they tell you to go smoke a cigar. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's what they were doing back then. And it wasn't until a hundred years later that they finally, did you know that the tobacco industry before this actually sponsored a race between a smoker and a non-smoker because they believed that smoking was good for you. You know who won the race? The non-smoker. Come on, guys. <laughs> that shouldn't take much. The non-smoker won. But do you understand that this mentality that smoking was good for you persisted for almost 100 years? So in other words, it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century when someone finally said, you know what? There is a connection between lung cancer and smoking. But back, back you know, 100 years before, someone with only a third grade education said, this is a poison and it's very dangerous. In 1906, she wrote this, the x-ray is not the great blessing that some suppose it to be. If used unwisely, it may do much what? Now, I know that some of you are sitting here saying, like, why would someone even say that? Did you know that back in the early part of the 20th century, did you know that if you went to a carnival, did you know that you could actually put your hand in an x-ray machine and you could, you could see, you could see your bones through the x-ray machine? Did you know that? It was a gimmick. I don't know if you know this, but they were using radium. Do you know what radium is? They, they mixed it with paint. And they would paint it on clocks. And this is true. The women that were working in these factories where they would paint, because, you know, radium glows in the dark, right? The factories where they would paint this, the women, they would lick the brushes to wipe off the excess radium. And many of these women ended up dying because they had severe radiation poisoning. Does that make sense? But see, they didn't know that at the beginning of the 20th century. They thought that this was an amazing thing. You can see right through your body. You can see through concrete. You can see through steel. And they just thought this was the greatest thing. But this woman with just a third grade education under inspiration said, this is going to do much more harm than good if you don't understand, you know, if, if they use it unwisely. Now, make no mistake, it wasn't until much later that they realized the dangerous effects that radium, that, I'm sorry, that radiation had. This is something else that she wrote in 1893. She wrote, the electrical, she talked about electrical force in the brain. Now, let me explain something to you. Mo uh, modern medicine today uh, understands that the brain functions with weak electrical impulses. But they didn't know that back in the early part of the 20s. They didn't know that. They thought it was just like an organ that it functioned just by, you know, cells and these kinds of things. They had no concept of this. This came much later on, and make no mistake, today we now understand the science of what she described in, in 1893, but back then, they had no clue about this. Now, something else that she emphasized to a great degree was the importance of Christian education. And as a result of this, the Seventh-day Adventist Church ended up establishing one of the largest parochial school systems in the entire world. I'm going to talk about it in just a little bit. But was she 
faithful to the Bible? Did she contradict it? Let me share with you what she said in her own writings. Let me read this to you. She said, cling to your Bible as it reads and stop your criticisms in regard to its validity and obey the word and not one of you will be lost. Now, let me explain why she wrote this. It was clear to the people at that time that knew her that she had a genuine gift. And when she wrote, people started taking her writings and some of them started ignoring the Bible. So she kept pushing them and kept saying, look, study the Bible, go back to the Bible. In fact, this is what she said. She said, there is a need to return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible, and the Bible only as the rule of faith and duty. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but in our seminar, every night, we have only been teaching things out of the Bible. That's it. And I want to make that clear because even though Seventh-day Adventists recognize Ellen White had the genuine gift of prophecy, we do not base a single doctrine on her writings. Everything that we believe is based on the Bible. Now, I want you to notice what she said about how to use her writings. This is what she said. She said, don't quote Sister White. Quote the Bible. Talk the Bible. It is full of meat, full of fatness. Carry it right out in your life. And this is an official statement from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The writings of Ellen White are not a substitute for Scripture. They cannot be placed on the same level. The Holy Scripture stand alone, the unique standard by which her and all her writings, all other writings must be judged and to which they must be subject. The Bible is the supreme standard. That is the official position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, I want to just make this point. We accept her writings as being inspired, but we view them as a commentary to the study of the Bible. Does that make sense? Seventh-day Adventists fully support the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, the Bible, as its, the Bible as its own interpreter and the Bible alone as the basis of all doctrine. So I just want to make it clear. We accept her inspiration, but she is not a replacement for the Bible. Now, does she ha did she have dreams and visions? Did she stop breathing? Did she manifest supernatural strength? So it, when she first began her prophetic ministry, there was a point when one day in a church, she held up an 18-pound Bible. Now, you know, today, Bibles probably weigh two pounds at the most, maybe three pounds. But there was a point when back in the day, Bible, family Bibles especially, they were big and they were, you know, they were bound with thick leather and some of them even had metal pieces like at the corners to, pro to protect the, the corners. Some of them even had hinges, believe it or not, to lock them. Ellen White took a family Bible that weighed 18 pounds and she held it above her head. Without looking, she would turn pages and quote from the scripture. And someone wanted to see, is she really quoting it right? They got on a chair and they looked and every time she wasn't looking at it, but she would point to it and quote it, they would notice that she quoted it exactly verbatim. By the way, someone held a candle in front of her mouth while she was in vision and it didn't move. In other words, they confirmed that she wasn't breathing. By the way, there was a guy who had trained for the Mr. Olympia contest. He heard about what Ellen White had done, and she held it for an hour. I think I mentioned that, right? And this guy who had trained for the Mr. Olympia, he got the exact same Bible, and he held it up over his head, 
but he could only hold it for like eight minutes, okay? Because I, I don't know if you realize, but, you know, it, it's one thing to lift heavy weights. It's another thing to hold it out for a long time. Does that make sense? That gets really tiring. So he found out, again, that this was supernatural strength that she manifested while she was in vision. Now, I want to make a point here. The Bible says the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make what? War with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. You see, the Bible is predicting that Satan would do all that he could to try to cause God's last day people to be swept away. And I want to tell you something. Today in the Christian world, there are so many false prophets that it's very easy to see how you can tell someone by their fruits. In other words, what is the result or the fruitage of their ministry? And one of the things that I've noticed is that in my experience with the writings of Ellen White, always her materials are designed to point you back to the Word of God and to the Bible. Today, I have a book that I'm going to be giving to our guests. It's called The Great Controversy. And uh, it's free. As, as you leave here today, I want to make sure you get a copy. This, in my opinion, is her most pivotal book. This is the one that she said, if you're going to give one away, you know, if you want to share this, give this, this is the one to share with people because this book is not only a history book, it covers the period from the destruction of Jerusalem, but it covers the final events all the way up till the second coming of Jesus. If you couldn't attend our seminar, but you read this book, you would understand everything that you need to know that we taught in the seminar. Does it make sense? Everything that we've covered is in this book. But the beauty of it is that it continues to point people to the Bible, to the Word of God, and it shows you, it expounds on those prophecies there in the book of Revelation. I want to tell you that the Bible predicts that in the last days, God will have a church that is sharing the gospel to the whole world. The Bible says, I saw an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Now, I want to I just give you an idea here. The Adventist church is the fastest growing Protestant denomination in the world right now. Did you know that every single day, and I'm not saying you know, every week or every month, every single day, 3,000 people become Seventh-day Adventists around the world. Did you know that? Every day. Now, I want to give you an interesting statistic. The Seventh-day Adventist church has more missionaries than any other denomination in the world. And it's not even, like, it's not even close. So let me give you an example we don't have two times as many missionaries or three times as many. We have 80 times more missionaries than the most active Protestant denominations in the world. Does that make sense? And I'm not trying to compare. I'm just giving you a statistic that this church is not just a regular denomination. This is a movement based on the Word of God. Does that make sense? Did you know that because of the emphasis that Ellen White placed on education and health, the Adventist church, and really because of the ministry of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus didn't just preach? 
but he taught and he also healed, right? Did you know that the Adventist church has one of the finest healthcare systems in the world? Now, what you're looking at is their flagship healthcare institution in California. It's called the Loma Linda University Medical Center. Did you know that this was the first hospital in the world to perform a heart transplant? First hospital in the world. And they are the first hospital. They are the, the pioneering organization that pioneered something called proton therapy. It's a form of cancer treatment that started with them. And it has spread, but they were the pioneers in this. In fact, if you go around the world, let me give you a quick story. Um, I served as a missionary in Thailand. And uh, when I went there, I discovered that, you know, when a president visits a country, so the president of the United States, when he visits a country, I don't know if you know this, before he goes, they always reserve one room at the best hospital in that country as a precaution if something goes wrong during his visit. Did you know that? It doesn't matter where he goes. If it's in Iraq, if it's in, you know, Afghanistan, wherever he goes, they always reserve one room for the president. And it doesn't matter if the hospital is overflowing, they will not put anyone in that room for the president's sake. Does that make sense? Guess what? In Thailand, when they reserved a room, they went through all the hospitals and they reserved a room at the Adventist Hospital because at that point, it was considered to be the finest healthcare system in that country. Did you know that in many countries around the world, the Adventist healthcare system is considered to be the best and the most holistic? In other words, they don't just treat you physically, but they want to help you mentally and spiritually as well. So it is a testament to the, to the uh, importance or the emphasis that the church has placed on physical, mental, and spiritual healing. And not only that, they have a very, very active humanitarian branch called ADRA. Um, some of you in here, I think, have been connected to ADRA at some point in your lives. But basically what they do is they help impoverished countries with wells, uh, supplying food, supplying clothing to, to people, and especially during disasters, you'll see them very active on the front lines helping people during crises. And I want to tell you something. The Adventist church is really a community. In other words, anywhere you go, if you accept the principles of the Sabbath, the second coming, what happens to men when they die, this beautiful gift of prophecy, when you accept these principles, everywhere you go in the world, you will always find like-minded believers because they're unified on the platform of faith in the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? So today as you, oh, and, and, and real quickly, you know, I can talk to you and, and make sure that as you leave here today, if you didn't get a copy, I have this copy for you. But, you know, I can talk to you about this gift of prophecy, and it doesn't do you any good. Just like if I had a piece of cake, I just want you to imagine this for a moment. I have a piece of cake, and I'm eating the cake, and I'm saying, wow, this cake is so moist, and the frosting is so good, and, you know, the, the, the taste, oh, I love double chocolate. And, you know, look, in order for you to know if the, ta- if the cake tastes good, what do you have to do? You have to try it. And so that's how it is with this, too. You can't know the beauty of this gift unless you try it for yourself. 
So I want to challenge you. So, some of you that have been members, maybe you've gotten so busy that you don't have time, but I want to encourage you to pick up one of her books because it's always a blessing to have a commentary on the Word of God. Amen? So let's close as we, as we finish our subject today with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that he's given to us a, a lesser light to shine on the greater light. And my prayer is that we can be blessed as we experience the fullness of gifts, not just apostles, not just teachers, evangelists, pastors, elders, not just those gifts, but also this gift of prophecy that you've given to your people in these last days. Bless us as we continue to fellowship together on the Sabbath day, for we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.